This is the Kingdom Movement Podcast, a place where we will explore through conversation how discipleship, theology, and community really can transform our world. Most admirably and worthy of everlasting remembrance was the mother who, seeing her seven sons perish in a single day, bore it courageously because of her hope in the Lord. Filled with a noble spirit that stirred her womanly reason with manly emotion, she extorted each of them in the language of their ancestors with these words, I do not know how you came to be in my womb. It was not I who gave you breath and life, nor was it I who arranged the elements you are made of. Therefore, since it is the creator of the universe who shaped the beginning of humankind and brought about the origin of everything, he in his mercy will give you back both breath and life, because you now disregard yourselves for the sake of his law. Antiochus, suspecting insult in her words, thought he was being ridiculed as the youngest brother was still alive. The king appealed to him, not with the mere words, but with promises on oath to make him rich and happy if he would abandon his ancestral customs. He would make him his friend and entrust him with high office. When the youth paid no attention to him at all, the king appealed to the mother, urging her to advise the boy to save his life. After he had urged her for a long time, she agreed to persuade her son. She leaned over close to him, and in derision of the cruel tyrant, said in their native language, Son, have pity on me, who carried you in my womb for nine months, nursed you for three years, brought you up, educated, and supported you to your present age. I beg you, child, to look at the heavens and the earth and see all that is in them. Then you will know that God did not make them out of existing things. In the same way, humankind came into existence. Do not be afraid of this executioner, but be worthy of your brothers and accept death, so that in the time of mercy I may receive you again with your brothers. She had scarcely finished speaking when the youth said, What is the delay? I will not obey the king's command. I will obey the command of the law given to our ancestors through Moses. So this, Paulo, is the story of the seven sons and this mother who are basically um, being executed by Antiochus, who will get into who this guy is. He's basically a, a pagan king ruling over um, this remnant that we talked about. And he basically wants them to eat pork. Uh, and as faithful Jews, they're not going to eat pork. They're not going to bow down to this guy because they're going to be faithful to Yahweh. And so it's basically the story, I kind of skipped over it because it's long. This mom watches as her first six sons are executed in front of her, and this is the last, the seventh son. And so, like the story says, the king kind of leans over and is like, hey, I'm going to help your son out. All he needs to do is just tell, basically acknowledge me as king, right? Do what I'm telling him instead of God. And <laughs> she basically, in her manly emotion, as, <laughs> as the book of Maccabees puts it, tells her son, uh, in layman's terms, forget this guy, son, be a man, die, and um, and follow God's laws instead of listening to this king. And so this story, I feel like I heard it um, in a different historical podcast, is a good summary of kind of the, the development of this time that we're going to talk about. So to give a language to this next section, it's called the intertestamental period. Um, and so the intertestamental period, it's a big fancy word, just think of it like this. 
It's the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you as the listener may be thinking, why are we talking about this if it's not in the Bible? Um, but I felt like it was really, really important for us to explore this time period because m- so many of the thoughts, the feelings, the peoples that are involved in the Gospels come out of this time period, right? So up until this point, we've never heard the word Pharisee ever in the Old Testament, right? We've never heard of a Sadducee. We have heard of the high priest and the priesthood, but all of these words or people groups are developed in this time period, and they play a huge role in the New Testament. So we have to explore how did this world come into being, and what is the world of Jesus born into when we open the the New Testament? But I got a little bit ahead of the cart. Hello, everybody. I'm Jake. Yes, and I'm Paulo. And uh, Paulo has already (laughs) graciously said to me that uh, I'll probably have to cover most of this one. Yeah, Uh, I'll be the question, (laughs) the one who asks questions. Perfect. Because I'm kind of dumb on this one. Yeah, and honestly, um, so when I first went to Bible school, um, I remember walking into my, it was called New Testament Survey, mm-hmm. and I'm a Bible geek, like, I love this stuff, so you might have to rein me in, and Vanessa's already told me, like, don't nerd out too much on this podcast, um, but one of my biggest questions that I did not understand, and I wanted to know more about, was this time period, like, what happened between the Old and the New Testament, like, I would read my Bible and there's no such thing as a Pharisee in the Old Testament, like we just mentioned. And the Romans just suddenly are on the scene. Mm -hmm. Who are these guys? You know what I mean? And I wanted to know more about like the world that Jesus actually belonged to. And so when I went to my New Testament survey class, the very first section was all about this time period. And I just like threw myself into it and interest and just to know more and more and more. So I think to help us kind of navigate the timeline, um, I'm gonna give us the name of six different empires, and then we're gonna kind of walk through the different stages, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. So we talked about Babylonian rule. The Babylonians were the ones that exiled uh, Judea, and then the Persians defeated the Babylonians. Now, I, I wouldn't suggest that you watch this movie. Don't watch this movie. Um, but if you've ever heard of the movie 300, um, it's oh, about yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. 300 Spartans that mm-hmm. fight the Persians, right? Yeah, I remember. So that's kind of a manly macho movie, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. So the, that movie really put the Spartans on the map of like cultural popularity, oh, right? Yeah. So that battle between the Greeks and the Persians happens um, around the time period uh, right after the the Persians take over the Babylonians. So the Persians basically inherit the Babylonian Empire and expand all the way out into what we would say modern-day Turkey, Mm. right? So on the edge of modern-day Turkey, there's some Greek states, and then there's Greece, right? Right across the the sea there, I I believe it's the Aegean Sea. So anyways, that doesn't really matter. Um, The Persians become an empire. They let the Israelites or the Judeans return back home. Well, sometime in the future, uh, after the the Greeks kind of fend off the Persian invasion, there's a man named Alexander the Great. So if you're a history nerd at all, you'll have heard of this guy. But he comes from a place called Macedonia or Macedonia. It just depends on how you pronounce it. And he is essentially, the Macedonians or Macedonians are viewed as kind of like barbaric Greeks. They're not necessarily viewed as like Greek Greeks, Mm -hmm. like sophisticated Athenians or whatever. But anyways... Alexander eventually conquers Greece, kind of 
takes control of that whole region and then he launches a campaign against the the persians and he ends up basically sweeping across the persian empire destroying it taking it over but he dies at a really young age around 30 years old yes. of disease so his empire gets broken up right and this is where the 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 story as we care about it takes over so the persians fall the macedonians take over Alexander dies and his empire is split up between four generals. So these four empires are the the two that concern us. I won't talk about the other ones. Uh, the Ptolemic, which is basically Egypt. So you have to think Greek Egypt at this mm-hmm. point. So if you've ever heard of like Cleopatra, she was a, a Ptolemic princess. Okay. Or, so the Ptolemaic Empire. So I don't know if you've heard all the ruckus about the Netflix show and how they were making a big deal how Cleopatra's black in the Netflix show. I, I, I've seen this show not watching and I've mm. seen there on my feed, but I never... Okay. I was like, ah, I like this story, but I don't want to <laughs> just watch it and, and get disappointed yeah. by this. So, I, so you obviously haven't seen it, but there was kind of a big uproar about her, the actor being black playing Cleopatra. And, you know, maybe you go like, well, duh, she was Egyptian or whatever. But the reason I'm not justifying the the backlash, I think it's stupid. But uh, the reason why people are getting up in arms is she's actually of Greek descent. So she is an inheritor of this empire of Alexander's, right? So she is um, part of the Ptolemaic dynasty. So then in Syria, which is just north of Israel, there is the Seleucid Empire, Mm -hmm. which is a part of the four nations that come out of it so this telemic and seleucid empire they their buffer zone or kind of their boundary is right at at the promised land so judea israel Mm -hmm. so that becomes a tension point between the two nations so under the telemic empire things are relatively peaceful um the the jews kind of can do their own thing they stub the temple everything's fine right it's it's not a huge deal the the major concern is greek culture so one of alexander's and really we're an inheritor of this um one of his big strategies in order to rule the world as he saw it um was to do what we would call hellenize so hellenize is basically to spread greek culture Mm -hmm. kind of like what americans do now (laughs) we or any colonial power, right? Um, they go into the nation, they begin to create hubs of culture of that nation. Mm-hmm. So Alexander was kind of the first to do this, and it's called Hellenization or Hellenism. So he began to spread Greek culture. Well, at this point in the Jewish history, they just, they've been through exile, right? They've done the whole show of like um, ignoring Yahweh and his customs and his laws for them. So they don't want anything to do with this, right? They know the results of what Hellenization would mean for them. Paganization is what they view it as, right? To, to be unloyal to Yahweh. So there's this kind of tension that rises up where there are people, like in all cultures, that embrace the Hellenization. You know, they, they go to the baths, they visit the Colosseums, they wear the clothes of the Greeks. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then there are those who are very strictly opposed to these kind of cultural customs that are being imported, right? So things get worse. So the Seleucid and Ptolemaic Empire, along with the other ones, like all empires, uh, aren't con- 
discontent with their borders, right? So they kind of have some border skirmishes and control of the Judea-Israel area goes back and forth, back and forth, until finally the Seleucid Empire, which was in Syria, defeats the Egyptian or the Ptolemaic side. So now this is where we pick up on that quoted story that I gave earlier. There's a, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth. What a name, right? Yeah. Hello, Antiochus Epiphanes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he is a huge proponent of Hellenization or spreading of mm-hmm. Greek culture. And so he goes so far as to gain a stranglehold on Judea. He basically, his sole goal is to eliminate Jewish culture and religion. So his, he wants to eradicate temple worship. And in fact, when it talks about the abomination of desecration in the book of Daniel, um, it really is uh, prophesied about this moment. He sacrifices a pig on the altar of, um, of the temple, and he also sets up standards and images of himself in the Jewish temple. So this is just beyond the pale, right? Yeah. The, the Jews will not stand for yeah. this. And so there are some people that are embracing, like I said, this culture, but there's a, a, a family um, Judas Maccabeus' father, Matthias, I think is his name. I'm trying to remember for sure. But basically, they're wanting them to force them to eat pork. And people in the village, their village or hometown, are doing this. And he actually kills them. He says, you're traitors. You're not worthy to be Jews. And he kills them. And so Judas Maccabeus, his son, and his other sons as well, basically rise up and create a rebellion against this Antiochus figure. And so they start a, uh, an insurgency war, if you will, to basically reclaim um, Judea, Jerusalem uh, for the Jews, right, and their customs. And many of these Jews have to die in resistance to Antiochus. That's the story that we just read of the mother of her seven sons. This is this idea of martyrdom and vindication. Mm-hmm. So the reason why this is important for Jesus' day is this is where the idea of dying for your faith, for dying for, dying and trusting that God will vindicate you. Vindication meaning prove that you're actually the one in the right. Yes. So that was that whole quote from that mother is, it is better for you, son, to die because God is eventually going to vindicate that you were in the right. So this idea of martyrdom and vindication really rises up in this time period as Antiochus is killing Jews left and right who won't bow down to him, essentially. And then they're also rising up in violent resistance to overthrow this guy. So I don't know. Do you have any questions at this point? Maybe uh, not, not yet. Okay. Oh, wait, wait. Yeah. So I think one thing just to help my mind kind of put that in a very... Because I like to put things, organize them on time. So yeah. what, which period of time are we talking about? Yep. So we're talking about... Um, so basically, yeah, let me give you the time period. So the Egyptian rule... So the, the Ptolemaic Empire, the good, in air quotes, mm-hmm. right, uh, was from 320 B.C. to 200 B.C. Okay. So was, again, going down means moving forward yes. in mm-hmm. B.C. So then the Syrians, the Seleucids, took over in 200 B.C. and they ruled till about 142 B.C. Oh, okay. Um, and so this next section, the Hasmonean M- dynasty, what we'll talk about, starts in 142. So anyways, Jews Maccabeus... Does that answer you? Does yes, that give you? Yes, okay. Definitely. So Judas Maccabeus leads this rebellion. 
um, basically, you know, claiming that God is behind us. He's going to overthrow these pagan overlords. And you have to think, like, even though the Seleucid Empire is a fraction of Alexander the Empire's strength, they still are a far superior fighting force than this measly backwater Judea. You know what I mean? This yes. is not like uh, the cream of the crop kind of nation yeah. at this point. Yeah, and I feel like here, so it's kind of this fight between like the Judeans, like being these small people who are trying to defend their land against this kind of a big, well-structured empire that have experience with raiding other places and then just coming to them. Is that the context? Yeah, that's, that's a perfect way of describing it. So really the odds of winning are pretty low at this point you know what i mean like to take this up uh is quite a risk it is not like a, a an easily decided thing mm. um so so yeah one one other thing it's about judas uh so is he fully jewish is he i believe what? so yeah okay because the 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 few times that i've read about him most of the times was with uh, anti right just kind of mentioning him as this person who was viewed as the Messiah yeah. uh, back in time. So one question is, did he, did he claim like that or the people just seeing what he was doing and the love he had and the, how he was following the, 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 the law, the Mosaic law? Yeah. Is it because of that or because he also claimed that he was the Messiah? So we'll get to that, yeah? Okay. So um, Judas basically creates this insurgency and is actually able to, defeat the Seleucid Empire. Not like the entire thing. It's mm -hmm. not like he took it all the way to Syria, but he's able to win back their homeland. Mm -hmm. So for the first time in 400 years, right, the land of Judea and kind of greater Galilee is an actual independent nation once again. There is no empire ruling over them. There's no overlord telling them how to mm -hmm. live their lives. They can establish their culture, right? And so this does create this sense of like, oh, you know what I mean? Maybe God really is doing something through this guy, kind of like what you're saying. And I'll get to answer your question in a second. So you've heard of Hanukkah before, right? Yes. The Jewish holiday. So after cleansing the temple and rededicating it, so this is three years after Antiochus has sacrificed the pig and done all that bad stuff. Three years after, they rededicate the temple oh, to Yahweh. Oh, so they rededicate it. Yeah. So this is where Hanukkah comes in, is that okay. rededication. Oh, yep. I see. I see now. So that's why Jews celebrate it, but Christians don't necessarily. But I think what's interesting is the book of Maccabees, I never really grew up knowing very much about it. I believe it's accepted like in the Catholic Bible. Yes, it is there. Um, and it's not that these books are bad. You know, sometimes I think Protestants or people who are not Catholic, they think, oh, we got rid of it for a reason. It's more that um, it's a, a semi-historical narrative. It's just that, like, the second and third Maccabees get a little goofy, and that's why they haven't really added it. But it's really just to tell you about this time period. You get what I'm saying? So I think the best way that you can look at these is you can learn from them. You can see what historically is going on. But you don't necessarily get strong theological implications out of them in the sense of like things that you're going to want to adapt yes. for your faith, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think we will talk a little. I don't know, but yeah, I, I had one of my. I was part of the band in the church, and he, the, he was the first person to kind of suggest me to go and read the Apocrypha. Is that how they? Call yeah, Apocrypha. It? Yeah, the Apocrypha, livers Apocrypha, Apocrypha books and everything, you know. And I was like, mm, I don't know. I grew up just like not not being advised to read these mm. books because I thought those were really 
bad books and everything you know they're not supposed to be in the bible and everything but once you go back and start reading them you kind of kind of just give you that image you know but yeah and i would say even with the apocrypha books they're not included because they don't carry the same weight and similarity as um the gospels mm -hmm. and they were written much later the authors are less determined and you know they have a little bit more fanciful stories in them and stuff but i think what they're really really helpful for from a historical perspective is to understand the mind and the culture and the worldview of jesus and his disciples contemporaries and those you know just before them and just after them because to understand from a historian's perspective, you have to understand how people view the events they live yes. in. And those books are really good to help you understand how did people themselves interpret it in that time. Because we can interpret it 2,000 years later, but we might miss completely how people saw those events in their own day. So to kind of answer your question, so Judas and his kin basically quickly rise to power. They become the ruling class. They kind of set a new priesthood over the temple. But the problem is like, the same problems that plague every nation the Jews before begin. You know, the infighting, the backstabbing, the injustice quickly erode like this kind of hopeful, you know, maybe optimistic idea that maybe this is this messianic yeah. kingdom. And so it leaves many with the sense that even though God had like vindicated his people, right? He had won this great victory for them against the Seleucid Empire. There's still something more to come. That this wasn't yes. quite what God meant because it just kind of felt like same old, same old, right? So that Hasmoneans end up really failing to honor God and they basically have blatant power grabs. And it left many people just kind of searching like, okay, where is this promised rule and reign of God? Is it going to come again, right? So we have our independence, but like it doesn't feel like this is what it was supposed to look like. And so that maybe if you were a Jew in that day feeling that, that was pretty quickly, quickly, relatively speaking, vindicated when the the great cog war machine of Rome rolls into town, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So we won't go into the long, long, Rome's got its own thousands of yeah, years of history. But basically there's a guy named Pompey. So the three kind of main figures at this time, Julius Caesar, which I think, Anyone who has a pulse on history will have heard of him. Julius Caesar, um, it's not Marius, whatever, he doesn't matter. And then Pompey for our sake. So Pompey's kind of like this really populist figure who really just likes fighting battles, likes doing the glory, likes getting all the fancy parades. So he basically, without really Rome's permission, takes over the entire kind of Greek, Turkey area for Rome and becomes, you know, crazy rich in the process and continues all the way down and even invades Jerusalem. So he shows up um, basically in the name of Rome. You can imagine the Hasmonean Empire being like, uh, who are these guys? They, they look a little bit more organized than even the guys we were dealing before. So he rolls up into Jerusalem and he goes so far as to enter the temple and then not only enter the temple, he walks straight into the Holy of Holies. Oh, really? Yeah, he wanted to see what was going on in there. And I think, if I remember right, he's a little disappointed because he's like, <laughs> There's not really anything in here. Where's the statue? Where's the, you know what I mean? But like this sacrilege by this Roman ruler, like begins to form this idea of Babylon and Antiochus, right? 
all these empires that have come before that have just kind of like steamrolled over these Jews and they haven't been able to put up a fight and they desecrate the temple and they just are like, how is this dude not getting struck down? You get what I'm saying? And so again, it leaves them kind of with like the sadness of like, is has they have things really been restored? You know what I mean? Because the pagans are still ruling over us. They're still controlling us. So anyways... Um, the Jews kind of have this sadness that there's no kingly figure. So basically, this time when the Romans do that, no one rises up. There is no Judas Maccabeus to fight for them um, and these new oppressors that kind of take over. So from then on, um, they're basically made to live under the tribute of Caesar in Rome. So basically, instead of the, the temple rulers like ruling with justice, they compromise with Rome, rendering to Caesar what is his. So... Caesar and Pompey kind of set up, and the Hasmoneans did this as well. They set up their own priestly system that was basically um, loyal to them. They weren't priests in the in the house of Levi. They didn't follow any of those. They just kind of put whoever they wanted in there that was gonna, you know, speak a good word about him. If that makes sense. So because of this, because no one rose to like fight the Romans, it became like, how do we? Um, live out our faith in a way that like is that god's going to act on our behalf right so there's all these different what nt Wright would call pressure groups that arise so this is the pharisees the sadducees the scenes like you mentioned in our last episode and all of them kind of have their different version of how to usher in the kingdom of god what the kingdom of god is going to look like kingdom of god being the rule and reign of god over his people so in Matthew, the book of Matthew, it's called the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are synonymous. They mean the same exact thing. Um, Jews would oftentimes substitute God with heaven as a way of reverence. That's the only difference. Mm. So anyways, these groups, so for the Pharisees, for instance, they follow Torah, the first five books of the Bible, rigorously. So much so that they start creating their own rules to make sure that they don't break the rules, right? And basically with this idea that God will return and vindicate them, that he will prove that they're the ones doing the right thing. Mm. So there's that vindication again, right? Yes. So after a brief, take, brief takeover by a rival nation named Parthia, um, they come in, they take over for a little bit. A guy named Herod, uh, and he'll pop up in the Bible, goes to Rome and basically gets them to back him as a client king. So he's going to rule on Rome's behalf, but he's going to rule kind of semi-independent of Rome. Yeah. But he's going to have to pay Rome. He's going to have to be loyal to Rome. So Herod, this Herod is the one who builds the temple of Jesus' day. So Herod really, really, he's not a good guy. But he really wants to be legitimized as a true Jewish king. Because he's not. He's from a place called Nabatea, which is kind of a neighbor. Okay, so But he does everything he can to feel legitimized by the Jews. So he builds the temple it's an extravagant, beautiful one. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So mm-hmm. you're talking about like, there's not a lot of temples that are going to rival this thing. And does all sorts of other building projects, um, basically to legitimize himself. So I maybe I'll stop here. Do you have any thoughts or questions so far? Uh, yeah, the thing is, I feel like there are a lot of things that come up during this time that really influences the, 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 the yeah. Bible writers. Most the gospel writers, but also kind of Paul's writing in the Bible because he he brings he comes back a lot into the the 
he kind of questioned the philosophy uh, that were created during this time. I don't know if you have something to say, like what are the biggest, I know you're not the philosopher here, uh, but like kind of like what are the things that uh, that came up during this time that influenced? Yeah. Uh, so let me, I kind of want to get through the timeline and then we can dive into that okay. if that's cool. Yes. So basically Herod dies. Um, and he divides up his kingdom between three of his sons. So this is kind of the time period that Jesus is born in. So there's a Herod. Herod the Great is this Herod who builds all this stuff, right? And he also is, the Jews don't like him. He's kind of a compromiser. He like sleeps around and he's just not a good guy, right? Mm-hmm. He, they say that it is, they, there was a derogative term or phrase that they use that it was safer to be Herod's dog than Herod's sons. <laughs> Because Herod like killed a ton of his children yeah. out of fear and jealousy. But anyways, three that got to, to live and remain um, take over. And so the son, who's also named Herod, is the one that eventually is going to try and kill Jesus. So like father, like son, right? Mm-hmm. But anyways, yes. So that's kind of the timeline-wise up into the time of Jesus. So we had the, the Greeks that took over the Persians. The Persians were the ones that let him go home. That broke up into the various empires. The Seleucids took over, were defeated by Judas Maccabeus, and his dynasty is called the Hasmoneans. Um, and then the Hasmoneans are defeated by the Romans. So it's just kind of like this back and forth, back and forth. Um, but yeah, so we can kind of talk about the ideas that sprung up during this time, right? So this is a time of huge messianic hopes and movements so before jesus there were people who rose up to say that they were the messiah right Mm. and i think it's really really important because when we read the new testament oftentimes we think of the messiah as a god term so to be the messiah is to be somehow divine but that is not anywhere within the jewish consciousness before jesus to be the messiah was to be the promised king but he is a human figure right And so to be the Messiah means that you are going to lead the people of God against the pagan nations and defeat them and bring God's sovereign rule and reign through the Israelite people. So there are people who are claiming this, who are rising up and just get squashed. So, And that justifies like why, like Matthew, for example, he starts with that long list of of the death of the senate of moses yes. you know just kind of to explain that this person you know it's not just this random person who's just coming and claiming the title but this person if you try if you trace his lineage you will go back and you'll see that he's actually the rightful king yes and i think it's really important to note as well like these guys when they get squashed it is seen as a failed messiahship no one is going around afterwards and saying like oh this guy's still the messiah right Um, the followers of these guys disperse and kind of the hope dies out. And I think the reason why I say that and it's important is when we get to that point in the narrative of Jesus, that is not what happens, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think the reason why it's important to say that now in preface to what happens to Jesus is that the expectation was not to be loyal after a Messiah figure dies, right? So something happened in the person of Jesus that is dramatically different than all these other messiahs. But go ahead. Yeah, so wait. Uh, so these people, uh, just kind of see if I'm understanding what you're saying. So yeah. these people, they would come and then claim uh, being the messiah. And then would they institute uh, a new way of 
uh, acting in way of just like Jesus instituted, or they would just come and claim that, and then they would fall. Because you were saying that people, once they died, people would just like, okay, this is a failed Messiah, so we'll just turn around. What are they turning around from? Is it just following him as a Messiah, or is it because he had some kind of new way of living that they were bringing. Yeah, so for most Jews, messianic hopes was a military hope. It was very much a political statement to say that you were a messiah, right? And so they would often find a way to um, have the temple, which was the legitimate house of God, right? Um, Back them in some way. So whether they minted on coins, they would have the temple or a symbol of God with them on it, right? Or they would find a way to get people to rally behind them um, to basically agree with their messiahship. But it wasn't necessarily, it it was not, as Jesus would say, Jesus was offering a radically different way to be a human being. And most messiahs were not. They were saying, if you follow me, then we're going to be in charge. So the reason why people would follow them is for whatever reason that messiah figure had convinced them that he had the chance to win and then if by backing the right person they could put themselves in a position of power Mm. so that was more the reason why people follow them so obviously when they died all those hopes are gone right there's no way and you even see that in the gospels the disciples are constantly vying for a closer relationship with jesus because they are working with this kind of messianic paradigm Like Jesus is having to completely reshape their thinking of what this messianic figure means. That's why he's so hesitant to use that title for himself, because he knows all the political and military overtones that come with it, that he's not ready to just throw that out there willy-nilly, because he knows what that's going to stir in people. It's going to stir in this idea that he's going to rise, raise up an army to overthrow the pagans. Mm. And that is not at all what is in the front of Jesus's mind when he thinks of what a Messiah means or what the true Messiah is meant to yeah. do. And this just kind of brings me to that conflict, to just the conflict of just Jesus uh, with his, because you see, there is some kind of conflict in there. There's some kind of expectation, but they don't see this ex- that, that expectation being fulfilled. I'm talking about the disciples, you know, they expect Jesus to do something. And I think... Uh, the story of like the entrance to to Jerusalem, you know, it just shows that like, hey, yes, this is the yep. the, the king, you know, is gonna come and just go and destroy all these these Roman Empire right here, and then it doesn't happen, and I just feel like Lucas Lucas shows shows that in a very he, he does a good job in just kind of showing how like all these bad um, ideas of Miss Miss Messiah, you know, kind of come and influences that because then after jesus dies you know he shows this story of these two people you know i don't know if i'm just getting ahead of okay nice so he shows the story of these two these two people were just disappointed like we had this messiah just one more one more guy you know we thought this was the one but he just just like other who died and everything and now we just have to go back to our normal life you know so they are walking um they're walking back to their house, to, to home, you know, disappointed. And then Jesus is walking with them and just asking this question. And that's when they just realize, like, oh, no, he's not dead. You know, so I just feel like those details of just this disappointment they all they had with all these wrong messiahs, you know, 
if yeah. you start understanding that you start understanding this story what Luca what Lu- yeah. Luke is trying to show with this story definitely and I think this is probably the number one piece that we miss when we talk about Jesus and Messiah like what the actual expectations and hopes of people for a Messiah was and it was very much a political real human king that would rule over his people now how that messiahship would come into being who that messiah would vindicate as the people of god was up for question Mm -hmm. right that's where all these different groups kind of break off because they all had an agenda of how the kingdom of god was going to arrive and who the kingdom of god people were so maybe that's a good transition but maybe right before we do that the other idea is this idea that God himself is going to come back and rule his people. Mm. So he's going to rule through the Messiah figure, right? That is a theme that is there, that God himself is going to come back to the temple. He will rule and through his appointed and anointed Messiah, anointed one is literally what Messiah means, mm-hmm. which anointed David was anointed, right, as king. So God is going to establish his anointed one and through that anointed one, in the rededication of his presence in the temple, God will bring his sovereign rule and reign over the entire mm. earth. But at this point, that is very much, it is a political thing. It is political in the sense of that uh, it has real world implications on rulers and nations and peoples and how they're meant to live, who they're going to live under. Uh, and so the Jews very much, they follow uh, once again, sadly, the paradigm of the world, which is, well, how do you take over nations? Well, like the Alexanders and the Julius Caesars and the Pompeys, right? You get your big army, you go take over these people, and you tell them we're the ones running the show now, right? And you're just going to go do that for God instead of you know money or greed or whatever. So anyways, these varying kingdom, in air quote, agendas pop up. So the first one is the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are a pressure group. Not They are never a... Um, like a legit, legitimate um, organization. So like the, the temple priests are an actual established priesthood, right? The Pharisees are people who have decided to live very, very restrictive lives so that they don't break Torah. And they create... Sorry, can you repeat that? I didn't get it. The, so they create basically really, really strict rules so that they don't break Torah. Oh, okay. So the the customs that they create. So when Jesus criticizes the Pharisees and he says, you've replaced the commandments of God with the, the commandments of man, and you make these huge burdens for people to follow and you yourself don't even lift a finger to help mm. them. It's this idea that they've gone beyond what God's law has asked of people. And in their mind, it's to make sure that they never break the law. So if the law says don't murder well, don't even, you know, like say something mean to you in air. Obviously, Jesus would say that too. But like it would be taking it a step further. But more so, it became about rituals. It wasn't a heart thing, right? The Pharisees were all about clean your hands, clean your cups, clean your dishes, ritually immersed, do not touch a dead body. You know what I mean? Don't get near sick people. And it became this calcified tradition, not adherence to God's law, but a tradition of man that instead of drawing people into the purposes of God and what they were meant to do, his justice, his mercy, his goodness, it instead helped the Pharisees put people in this box and people in this box, the God box and the not God box, right? So that's why you see 
when they say, why would Jesus ever associate with these kinds of people? Mm. Well, these people not only were not following the Pharisee's strict rules, they weren't even following the Jewish law, right? And so they saw them as complete compromisers, outsiders, because their whole kingdom agenda was we have to get everyone on board with strict adherence to Torah so that God will return. Mm -hmm. That once we're all strictly following Torah, then God will return and vindicate us. But until we do that, we're always going to be compromising pagans, right? And so they did not like the Sadducees, which is the next group we'll talk about. The Sadducees were the compromisers. They were the ones that embraced Hellenism. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, right? They, who would believe in all that, you know, fancy-smancy, like pie-in-the-sky thinking? They were the, the practicalists, the realists, the politicians. And so the Sadducees are probably the least discussed group outside of the New Testament, but they are basically um, cultural embracers of Hellenism, of what maybe we would coin in the modern day as progress. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas the Pharisees would be the hard-nosed conservatives. The Sadducees are the open-handed liberals, (laughs) if you're going to put it in like modern day terms, right? And so that's why those two clashed hardcore, because they were polar opposites of kingdom agendas. The Sadducees kind of had the mindset of, well, we have to work with the Romans because they're the ones in charge. And we will basically grease the palms of anyone we need to to stay in power. Then we have the Essenes. So like you said, some people believe John the Baptist kind of came out of these guys. Um, They were much in, they rejected the temple. They saw the temple as completely corrupt, as run by crooks and thieves and liars. So they totally rejected the temple priesthood. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, their justification was these guys were not set up by the people God said, the Levites. They're just priests that, whoever's in power sets up you know what i mean so they're just power hungry uh corrupt guys so they their response then unlike the pharisees who remained in society right they just became pressure pressure people in their society pushing people into what they believed the essenes separated from society so they completely segregated themselves they went out into wilderness places they had ritual immersions They saw themselves as what they would call the sons of light versus the sons of darkness. They believed God would come and vindicate them and eventually prove that they were the ones in the right, right? This idea of vindication over and over and every one of these agendas believes God is going to vindicate them. Vindicate, again, meaning prove that they are the ones in the right. So then we have the temple priesthood. So these guys are basically in charge of the temple system. And they are, again, in it... in it for themselves in a sense like they have compromised with rome they're happy to do whatever uh puts them well off they have you can even go to the old city of jerusalem right where they've excavated and they have some of the nicest houses in the city right so they are very much benefiting from the status quo they do not want the boat rocked and so that's why a lot of times they will hand over these messianic figures because they're no good for the current power dynamic Mm. The Sadducees and the temple priests are benefiting from the current system, if that makes sense. So they are happy with the status quo in a way. Lastly, we have Herod. Again, we kind of talked about him and his descendants. They are basically puppet kings for Rome. They do whatever Rome really wants, um, and they're not great rulers. So the other important thing to understand within the world of the Jews at this moment, three times as many Jews 
live outside. So this might be helpful. Uh, Judea is a region. Galilee is a region, but Rome calls this entire region Palestine. Palestine. So that's where we get the term Palestine today. So from now on, we'll refer to it as Palestine, the Judea-Galilee region. Yeah. Uh, One question is, how did the Roman deal with that conflict? Uh, Did they uh, even just care about the conflict or just... They just went and just you guys said the same thing that happened in Nigeria with the with with England just like these two these three groups of people just you guys are all the same thing or just call you Nigeria did uh did the Rome kind of have any way of dealing with this separate this separation that existed in Palestine but um, when they got there or they just yeah. didn't care about it so that's a great question the Romans perspective was as long as it's just about Jewish squabbles of religion, as they would see it, right? You can take care of that yourself. Oh, So you even see that in the trial of Jesus. When they go to Pontius Pilate, he's like, why are you bringing this to me? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This sounds like a you problem, basically. And so what do they have to do in order to get Pilate to crucify him? They have to turn it into a political problem. So that's where Messianic or Messiah claims get you into trouble with Rome because there's only one Lord of the world. So Caesar, Augustus, who is alive during the time of Paul um, and during the time, the birth of Jesus, I believe. Yeah, birth of Jesus. He is calling himself son of God, meaning giving himself a divine title. Title King of Kings was a Persian title that many of these Western guys adopted. So he is Lord of the earth. As he sees it right so anyone who makes the claim that they are king of kings or they are lord is trampling on roman territory and rome does not like rebellions right they don't like uprisings they want good citizens who pay their taxes and don't put up a fuss so any anytime these messianic movements come into play it's not only that the expectations are military on the jewish side of things but it can get you in hot water with Rome. That's another reason why Jesus avoids it until the very end to kind of make these messianic claims. And when he does make them, it's always in private with his disciples. So Rome is basically okay with all these different groups as long as they never step in over that line of basically political control. Mm. So Rome basically says, have at it, right? So I think it's also important to know, like I was saying, there's three times as many Jews outside of Palestine, so Judea and Galilee, as there are in Palestine. So a lot of them are in a place called Alexandria now, Tarsus, where Paul is from. Mm -hmm. There's even a lot of Jews in Rome at this point. Um, And the main language of the Jewish world is now Greek, not Hebrew. And in Jesus's day, they spoke Aramaic, which is kind of a Middle Eastern general language that would have been spoken. Some scholars believe they would have known Hebrew, some Hebrew as well still, but most of them, Jesus probably also knew a little bit of Greek as well. Um, But again, this is that Hellenization coming into play, right? Most of the Jewish people think and talk in Greek now. They don't Mm -hmm. think and talk in Hebrew. And so this is kind of the world of Jesus, right? You have all these pressure groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. Oh, and sorry, then there's the last one. We skipped over them. But they're important is the zealots oh yeah so the zealots view their role as the kingdom of god comes through violent means we have to expel rome from our life very much following in the line of judas maccabeus they would say 
in order to overthrow the pagans, we have to fight them by violent means and we have to kick these guys out, right? It's by the sword we're going to win our victory. And so they really embrace the idea of violence and God will vindicate their violence because their cause is holy, right? And we've heard that. I mean, that is not a zealot only thing. That is a unfortunate thing that has happened through long lines of Christian tradition as well. Yes. That God will vindicate us because we have the right belief or we believe in God. So what's interesting is one of Jesus' disciples is a, zealot, a zealot, right? Yes. And he's a disciple alongside a tax collector. Zealots hated tax collectors. They saw them as the deepest compromisers with Rome out of all of society, right? Tax collectors being people who literally took money from their own people to give it to Rome. So if you can imagine that circle of disciples that Jesus has, these are people from all varying backgrounds and walks. And that's part of why Jesus creates the 12 that he does it's almost a symbolism of all these different backgrounds and agendas coming together, right? And if you've ever watched The the Chosen, they, they do a really got, good job of portraying that one of the guys is a zealot and he just cannot stand Matthew, the tax collector. But I, that's one thing I love about that show is it kind of brings, I think, Jesus' discipleship down to a human level. Like, what do these guys actually act like on a regular basis? Yeah. And it's just one, one of the things that once, like, just reading all these and understanding is just how Jesus like he jumped a lot of like boundaries you know it just went through them just like choo, mm. choo, 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 choo. I don't care about all these things and then he and it's just like this idea of like Jesus he was really you know his main goal was to really unite everybody you know just like everything every rule you guys created i don't care about them they're not important in anything you know i just want to come and unite you guys to become one people and then through you guys i send you to go and tell everyone else in the world to come and join this yeah this party that had started and yeah go ahead yeah i i have one one more question, but I, I if no, you want to finish. Uh, no, go ahead, man. So, yeah, uh, it's not a question. Yeah, it's a comment, but I want you to add into that. So, no, actually, it's a question. <laughs> <laughs> so, the thing is, where there's all these big conflict about um, the circumcision comes from, you know? Because you read the Bible, you see there is a conflict about yeah. it, you know? There is, a, yeah, there is for some reason a, a conflict. But once you get into the New Testament, you know, you just see like, no, this is not, uh, the Bible back in the Old Testament didn't make it a really big deal, but these people, you know, just sees this as a really, really, really mm. big thing, really very important thing, you know? Yeah. And of course, like just understanding a little bit of what you were saying, make kind of gives you an idea because it is a view people who value the exclusivity you know value mm -hmm. just like follow, following the the torah yeah on at, at yeah each point of it yeah so in the future we'll have an episode called the people of god so it'll be kind of the the post resurrection story and we'll talk a little bit about that because that is the big question of the early church you know our churches have problems that they wrestle with and we have to fight through what's What's the future going to look like? But that was the question. And the reason why, I think, so in the Old Testament, circumcision was a big deal. Other nations did circumcise. It wasn't like it was the Jew-only thing, but that was a mark of the covenant, right? To be a Jew, that was a part of who you were. But I think 
along with all the compromise that led into exile, we always have to filter everything that happens through that lens, right? So the result of exile produces a people who are anxious to be obedient to God because they saw the results. Mm -hmm. And so that anxiousness, when the new kingdom breaks out, and it's this idea that covenant relationship, the new covenant promised in the prophets, right? And we, I think we might even miss that theme, but the new covenant, God was going to make something new with his people. That idea um, includes the nations. So we talk about messiahship and the messiah, part of his role is to rule over the nations. Well, the expectation is political, but Jesus reforms that. We'll talk about that. But this idea of including the nations into the family of God, it creates this tension of, well, do they become Jews through circumcision? Or are they included already just by the presence of the Spirit, right? And so for some, no, the family of God is Jewish. And for others, they're saying, no, we have seen the proof that the family of God, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. But it really came down to, I think, a, a diluting that fear, right, of are we compromising again if we if we back down on this? And so that becomes a tension point. And it's a tension point that always happens in the church. Are we compromising here or can we give ground? You know what I mean? And it's never easy in those areas. Um, are, are we compromising or not compromising looks different. You know what I'm saying? But that is a question that the early church definitely wrestled with. Yeah. Yeah, and you can see that you can see that fear in in the disciples, you know. Yeah. Even like just Paul calling out uh Peter, you know, with all this. You can see like in Peter like there is some kind of conflict in him in the sense of like, you know what? Jesus said all these things, you know, and I just feel like this idea of like circumcision is not very important but also you know i have all these people that i am with you know kind of value that so where do i put myself in you know yeah. and i just feel like the bible it just shows just him as struggling in the sense and then he just come and then he just separates himself and paul paul call and call, calls him out yeah and definitely so kind of maybe to sum up this episode it will be a shorter one um with all these conflicts, with the compromise on one side and the strict adherence to Torah on the other side, there's still this sense of exile, right? Like that the full restoration from Babylon has not occurred yet. Mm -hmm. And so there's this turmoil that remains, even though they've returned home, right? There's still this tension that holds the Jewish people. Um, what is God going to do next, essentially? Mm -hmm. And it gets put in this giant pressure cooker, right, of... Rome is ruling, and how do we deal with this? How does the kingdom move forward? Is God with us? Is God not with us? How do we see the kingdom happen? And this is where the New Testament steps in. And, you know, rather than being born in a palace, rather than being born, you know, with great trumpets and uh, telling all the quote unquote important and right people, Jesus is born in humble beginnings in Bethlehem mm -hmm. in a stable where shepherds who are viewed as dirty, <laughs> even if they do follow, David was a shepherd. They're at this point in time, they're not, you know, people that you want to be around. Mm -hmm. Shepherds are the first witness, right? And I think to end this episode, the best quote to start us off with is in the, in the first chapter of John, when it says, literally, he pitched his tent of flesh among us. And so there's this idea all of a sudden that like the tabernacle, the tent of God's presence, there's now this person named Jesus who has stepped into the middle of time in history 
And in some weird, mysterious way, the presence of God is resting on this person in a new way. And so in our next episode, we'll explore what exact, who was Jesus, right? What was this kingdom of God that he proclaimed? Because the kingdom of God was the, the focal point of his entire preaching ministry. And then, you know, in the next in the episode after that, we'll get into the death, resurrection, um, the cross. What was that all about? You know what I mean? What, what exactly happened? Why did it need to happen? All that good stuff. But in this next episode, we're going to focus on the ministry in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So any last final thoughts or questions, Paulo, before we bounce? I'm sorry, I'm just searching something here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just feel like this this episode really helped me a lot cool. uh, in the sense of just understanding a lot of things. And like one of the thing for me is when you start reading, I think John is the one who kind of add a lot of that uh, in his introduction to the Bible and everything, yeah. to his book. And he's, you can see that this guy is kind of bringing this message but in the way that he's questioning few philosophies that the roman brought into yeah. into 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 the people you know uh into palestine you know because even paul with his speech in i think sanhedrin uh when he goes in and he gives that big speech you know you can see that not just not only they're bringing the message you know but they're bringing in the way of questioning every all these things all this culture that were brought up with the romans and all these people who raided uh israel or raided Mm -hmm. palestine i can say in that way so it's just there's so many things that you can start to understand and put them in each uh put them there and just they start fitting in the story and all the languages that paul uses yeah uh, in that sense so Yeah. yeah that was a very good episode Awesome. Yeah, I mean, Paul's entire message is the outworking of what does it mean for crucified and then raised Messiah to exist? And what does mm-hmm. that mean for the world and the kingdom of God? And so maybe as the, the teaser to leave us off, what we'll look at next is the, the new way I would describe as being human that Jesus offers through his Messiahship and more importantly, um, for the family of God. To keep this project going right yeah. and maybe in this episode we kind of lost that thread a little bit but it throughout this whole story it's all about been about how is god going to use this unique family to bring restoration and hope right and up until this point it seems like the story's gone more in a nosedive than an upward notion but we're about to see what god's true and final answer to this problem is mm-hmm. right yes. in the person of jesus so We'll discover that next time. Yes. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. This is just a brief reminder that if you've had a question come up from this discussion or you just have a question in general that you want to ask us on the podcast, uh, now is the time to do it. We want to make sure that we get these questions in for the end of the season Q&R. Uh, And we cannot wait to hear your guys' questions, to read them, and to be able to respond. But we can't do that unless you send them to us. So make sure if you're a part of Kingdom Movement already, you can personally message us your question. Or you can send them via our Instagram. And we will make sure to read those. And hopefully we will answer your question on the season finale question and answer, uh, question and response episode. All right. Thanks, guys.